0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the winter storm that's hit the U.S., the current situation in Ethiopia's Tigray Rebellion, and the coming fate of Syria. All that and more, coming up. To the rapid fire news, uh, we have deadly attacks in Afghanistan. Uh, there's been a series of violence there, um, particularly between the Afghan government and the Taliban in the recent weeks. The Biden administration is now promising retaliation against Russia for the Solar Winds hack, um, a major hack of the U.S. security um, sector that took place last year and was kind of a point of contention uh, after the election so there's that and speaking of Russia there's rumors of Alexei Navalny being put into a penal colony and I have uh, little parentheses right here and left to rot (laughs) I don't I don't think that man's getting out of jail folks I don't I, I just don't think he's getting out of jail. Not after all this. <laughs> Russia's going to basically take out their fury on him. Uh, so there's that. Then there's an anti-government march in Thailand. Uh, their capital, Bangkok, where there's been pro-democratic protests that have been mainly student-led from the universities there. Uh, and they're marching in opposition to the monarchy that runs Thailand. Uh, this has been going on for uh, at least a couple months. Uh, I'm actually not entirely sure how long it's been going on. I just know that the first time I covered it was um, a couple months ago. So there's that. But the, pro- the march itself was about 300 people. So it. For the time being, it doesn't seem to be like a really, really major movement, at least not yet. Uh, Maybe it'll go away. Or maybe it'll become really big and reach critical mass. Or maybe they'll just convince the military uh, of what they want and the military will overthrow the regime. And you either end up with a military junta or the military actually does hand over control to a civilian government. This can go a number of ways, but for the time being, it looks like the monarchy in Thailand is probably going to stay in power. That's just what it seems like to me from looking from the outside in. So I'm sure the monarchy will be very happy about that. And by the looks of it, a decent number of the people who live in Thailand, given the lack of enthusiasm for this um, anti-government march. Um... Next, we have the Canadian Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, he is going to hold his first meeting virtually with Biden, Joe Biden, on Tuesday. Um, but interesting thing, an interesting thing to note here is that the Vice President, Kamala Harris, has actually already met, again virtually. With Trudeau and Macron. So that's Canada, the leader of Canada and France. She has already met with them. And, well, ahead of the president. So, a bit odd, but interesting thing to note. Well, I. They're probably gonna talk about trade relations, kind of. I mean, it's kind of set in stone at this point, but I imagine. Trudeau is probably going to have a bit of a couple questions about the pipeline, the Keystone Excel pipeline that Biden canceled the licensing for in his first couple days in office. So I imagine that'll get brought up. Other than that, it'll probably just be cordial and formal greetings. Nothing too substantial, I believe. Um, We have... Over 200 million vaccines have now been administered globally but considering that the vaccine is a two is a two-step thing where you have to get two shots, that really means that about 100 million people at best uh, have been fully inoculated with the vaccine so they've but I don't necessarily believe, it's 100 million people, because it seems like people are getting a one shot right now, and they're kind of spreading the shots thin. And then you have to, like, wait a while before you can go back and get the second shot. So uh, I guess we'll have to wait until the hard numbers on how many people have gotten both shots come out, and then we can start to judge um, how well we're doing. But the fact that we've reached the 200 million mark in vaccine administrations... Is already a good sign. Now. We have Britain and Canada. They have imposed economic sanctions on Myanmar. Uh, And this is in the wake of the military. That took control of the country. Um. Back in January. Yeah. A major diplomatic story. For whatever reason. I'm not entirely sure. Um. It garnered so much international attention. I mean, you don't you don't hear about Burma every day, so this seems like a bit of an outsized response for such a well seemingly irrelevant country. I don't. I feel bad saying that, but if you look at the people who are condemning this, um, I when was the last time Burma came out of their mouth? And it just seems really odd. That would garner so much attention, especially when you have a lot of other things going on that, you know, you would think would grab their attention before that. Whatever. Maybe we'll figure it out. But for the time being, um, Myanmar is coming under an intense sanction regime. Um, It may or may not push them closer to China and Russia economically. Um, We'll have to see, you know. They have about they have pretty mixed feelings about China, but Russia maybe Russia kind of has limited ability to even get there. But we'll have to see. We'll really just have to see on that. Next we have twenty seven students and teachers having been kidnapped by armed men in Nigeria. An interesting little thing, uh, kind of odd, thinking about an adult being kidnapped. You know, with kid in it, but I digress. Terrible. But then after that, we have Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO. He has stated that the alliance will only leave Afghanistan when security conditions allow. Now, for those who can't translate warmonger to English, that means we're not leaving. <laughs> Or that means that they are not leaving because they the rest of the alliance and the rest of the NATO alliance cannot operate in Afghanistan without U.S. logistical support. So that's why we're seeing all these stories now about uh, how it's important that we stay and how we can't leave and how NATO is going to take a firm stance and how they're not going to leave. We're hearing all these stories now because the Trump administration had reached a deal with the Taliban, and the deal was that you stop being violent and we leave by May 1st. Now have they held up their end of the deal? Maybe, maybe not. We'll have to see the numbers on that uh, at a later date. Sometime after May 1st But regardless America has been pulling out troops at a rapid pace since that agreement was reached and May again May 1st is the deadline for a total US withdrawal from the region So and again, this has been a point of contention between the rest of NATO who has troops there Because if America goes they have no choice but to go as well now, why they would want to stay, I don't really know i mean I, there's no reason to be there at this point. And it's not like i mean we we haven't ended the war in twenty years. I don't see what staying another twenty is gonna do uh other than take a war torn country and make it more war torn but I don't know what they I don't know what. Uh, uh, War mongers, you know, they elude the they elude the grasp of common sense. But uh, New Zealand, in a symbolic move, has pulled out six troops from Afghanistan. Uh, out of thirty five hundred. Uh, again, this is a symbolic move, but um, not nearly as much as I'm sure the Afghans would appreciate. Or the Taliban, for that matter. Or the New Zealand people, for that matter. And nobody wants to be here, um, except for the people running the war. I don't get it. But um, I'd imagine that all 3,500 of those troops would be making a beeline to get out of the country if America left. So all hopes and prayers that the Biden administration falls through on what Trump started. And we get out of here by you know the first of May. Hopefully he doesn't turn course. and hopefully we can see real a real end to this conflict that really doesn't have anything to do with any of the foreign powers that are intervening in this. Uh, this is a Afghan affair. This is an Afghan civil war between them and the Taliban. I don't see the place that, or at least I don't see America's place in this, and I don't know why we're there, uh, a question which uh, eludes, and answer, the eludes that most of America to this day, but I digress, isolationism for the win, uh, <laughs> but since we're on the topic of the US, we're going to talk about the winter storm that has hit America, now. To those of you living in America, you know all about it. Or maybe you don't. We'll see. To those living outside of America, over the past um, two weeks, America's been smacked with this big winter storm. And in the last week, um, Texas got it hard. It was really bad for a period of time. Um, And uh, we're going to cover it today. I feel like it was big enough Domestic that I, we can talk about it on geopolitics. So, the winter storm has hit the Midwest and the Great Plains states. And for those unfamiliar with those terms, uh, that would be ge- basically the area of America that sits between the Rocky Mountains in its west and stretching all the way to, like, the Mississippi River. So that's the general area we're talking about here with a little bit of overlap, you know, because it's it doesn't just end right there. It goes a bit past the Mississippi. but that's that's the general area we're talking about here. So the winter storm eventually made its way to Texas, uh, causing major power outages that have shaken the nation, oh, shaken, that have taken the nation's attention. And from my understanding, the outages in Texas have been caused by the snow covering up the solar panels and the cold has caused the wind turbines to freeze. This has been blamed uh, by pro-green energy advocates. This has been blamed on Texas uh, because Texas didn't winterize their equipment. But, well, uh, I mean, it's Texas. So why would they? It's usually hot in Texas, and well, the wind and solar, you add to that, the, the wind and solar were working pretty fine all the other winters, and really it's just a once in a 100 year event, because this type of thing usually doesn't happen, so it's not like you would try, you would actively think, oh, we're going to prepare for this, it's just something that catches you off guard. It's a disaster, and we deal with disasters as they come. Or well, at least that's my perspective, anyway. Um, but regardless, this has taken both energy sources out of commission. And we're talking about the snow and the icing. And it has taken both solar and wind energy out of commission. Well, it took them out of commission for a few days. Um, and that's that caused blackouts it caused major blackouts uh, the situation in texas has initiated though a semi-national conversation over the texas energy grid And um, i guess i should take this moment to say that uh at the height of the blackouts around three million people in texas were without power Um, So that's roughly 10% of the state's population a little bit over because there's like 29 million I believe living in Texas 29 I believe Maybe 30 at this point uh, I have to I'll have to re-update myself on my state populations But I believe that that's roughly the number we're looking at here so 10% Um. It has made major recoveries, and I'll get into that in a little bit, but that's kind of the height of the crisis. Um, the situation in Texas, though, uh, has initiated a semi-national conversation uh, over the Texas energy grid. Now, most of Texas is run on its own energy grid. So if you were to look at it like a map of the three energy grids in America, and I guess four... Maybe five, because I'm not entirely sure if Alaska and Hawaii are <laughs> hooked up to the western interconnection, or even if they could be. So they probably have their own energy grids. So that would make it five. But in the continental U.S., uh, mainland, the mainland, there's the eastern interconnection, the western interconnection, and then there's kind of like Texas but it looks more like Texas' uh, original territory when they were split between America and Mexico. So uh, that's just me being a history nerd. But um, they have their own energy grid. And this has sparked a conversation. Now, most of tech, yeah, most of Texas, they're run by their own energy grid. And rather than being a part of the East or West interconnections, and these interconnections roughly split. Are roughly split halfway between the country so you have like half on the eastern and half on the western uh, again minus texas and these interconnections are where state energy grids are linked into one another uh so they if they have excess energy they can send it to different parts of the grid it's in case one of them has like a fall in production the others can pitch in texas is independent of that so it could not, for the most part, you know, take in excess energy from other states. So that's kind of where, how we got here and why it's garnered so much attention. Now, part of this conversation is about regulation and the fed- well, federal regulation and how Texas should have had it. Uh, there were some people talking about uh, how no minimum, there was no, not minimum wage, there was no state income tax, uh, and a whole, it was really weird, but, um, the, part of the conversation is about regulating Texas's energy, but I, myself, I don't know what the regulations would have done to change or improve the situation in Texas. Uh, especially as there are states who are a part of the federally regulated power grids, the East and West interconnections, uh, who also had power outages. I was watching this video from Young YoungRipa59, or Eric July, that's his name if you look at him on Twitter. And, uh, he made a series of videos that I have watched on the subject and he and through those videos, I learned that there were other states who had uh, blackouts because you know the news isn't doing its job. <laughs> but he pointed out uh, that Oregon and Mississippi both had blackouts, and there are probably others. But he used these to kind of make his point, um, and and it kind of uh, let me let me backtrack. He used these states. Oregon and Mississippi to kind of make his point uh, due to the scale of their blackouts and their location with regards to the energy grids that they're a part of. Oregon being a part of the Western interconnection and Mississippi being a part of the Eastern interconnection. So the the two interconnections that are federally regulated are accounted for and the blackouts uh, were roughly proportionate. To what Texas had uh, again, this is by population. So Oregon has around four million, and Mississippi around three million. Mississippi had to be like a couple hundred thousand. Oregon had a couple hundred thousand uh, out of power. So proportionately speaking, the scale is roughly the same as what they had, as what you had in Texas. So that's kind of why he used these two states. Uh, To make his point. But Texas has recovered very rapidly. uh, To the point where its numbers in absolute terms. So just looking at the raw numbers. Not like on a proportional basis. But just on the raw numbers. They're already on par with the numbers of those smaller states. And again we're talking about people who are out of power right now. So... It seems like the national conversation is kind of unwarranted and off-balance, because it's geared towards federal regulation, but Texas, who is less federally regulated, given that it has its own energy grid, has managed to recover faster than states who are a part of the federally regulated energy grids. So at least in my eyes, it seems that the answer is clear lower regulations uh save lives but uh, that's my opinion on the matter uh, texas has uh is still facing water issues though i heard that there are still uh between a million and a couple hundred thousand who are without power well not without power without water um but i imagine that'll be resolved relatively quickly as well um Because the nation, since this crisis has hit Texas, has kind of begun to rally around Texas. Which is hastening its recovery in those other areas, like water I mentioned. Uh, So, keeping debts at a minimum. uh, Beautiful, beautiful America working together. Good old nationalism. (laughs) But uh, Texas... Uh, what, what more can you say? They got hit with a once in a hundred year event and those events generally are guaranteed to bring once in a hundred year problems. But again, the nation has rallied around Texas and we'll probably be out of this by March or at the very least pretty close to getting out of this. Um, and the reason I bring this story up is because it has... It's something happening at home that has completely stolen America's attention from other places around the world, other places like Africa, to the dismay of French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, You see that smooth transition I did there? Uh, Because as we talk about France here for just a little bit, Emmanuel Macron, he has recently been pushing... For the EU and the U.S. to play a bigger role in African vaccinations out of fear that Russia and China will fill the gap. And in my notes here, I have also uh, out of fear that Americans will be more than content with their government giving them all of its attention rather than giving attention to other places that are not America. Um... But given the state of the EU's vaccine rollout, this is really just them talking to us in America because the EU isn't going to be able to do it. Britain has more vaccinations than in the entire continent. I don't see how the EU is going to be able to play much of a major role in this, especially when they're still dealing with the political fallout um, from their vaccine rollout. So really, Macron is talking to America who at this point I think is at like 50 million uh, vaccinations out of a country of roughly 330 million. So, but again, we need like, uh, it's a two shot vaccine, but the production and the administration is ramping up and it's pretty incredible that we reached 50 million so fast. And, uh, seems like just yesterday, the vaccine came out. But I guess that just means 2021 is moving ever so slightly faster than 2020 did. That year lasted a decade, I swear. But he's talking to us. It's kind of clear he's talking to us and he's essentially begging America to get involved in Africa's vaccinations in in the place of the EU because the EU can't do it. Uh, out of again out of fear that China and Russia will gain influence on the continent now my personal response uh if Russia and China want to deliver vaccines to Africa and Africa wants to take them then they can take them and whenever America gets around to doing so if we get around to doing so we can play that game too but we have A couple hundred million people here that need to be taken care of. I mean, come on now. Now, granted, not everyone here in America is going to take the vaccine. Uh, There's been major skepticism (laughs) about the vaccine. But uh, roughly half the country, a little under half the country, revise those numbers, are probably going to take it. So I would imagine around 100 to 120 million people. Uh, We'll have to see about the middle. Uh, But I can guarantee you uh, roughly 70 million people ain't taking (laughs) it. But so we can look to about 100 million to 120 million people in America that actually want the vaccine. That's my estimate, my guesstimate. So that would mean roughly 200 to 240 million vaccinations because it's a two-shot vaccine. At least until the Johnson-Johnson, Johnson's-Johnson's vaccine come out. Uh, Then you'll start to see the single-shot vaccinations because that's what that one is. And the numbers that we see will be total vaccinations, the complete vaccinations rather than half because it won't be two-shot anymore. So... Yeah, that's France seemingly distracted from, well, that's Macron seemingly distracted from a whole host of issues that are befalling him at home, Um, appealing to something that Americans don't want to do, and and over something that China and Russia are more than willing to do. But I'll digress. It It seems really odd that he would be doing this. Uh, especially since apparently he was one of the people who pushed for the EU to take control of the vaccine rollout in Europe. So I imagine that's not going to help him in his elections uh, next year. Uh, but that being said, we're going to move on to the next part of France, and we're going to only going to talk about France for a little bit here. Uh, uh, French students are in bread lines and... Uh, Bread lines, yeah, yeah, not really bread lines, but they're in food lines, so I'll call them bread lines uh, due to lockdowns, and they have no money. So, and yet another problem to add on to the French table. Uh, after that, we have France entering an election year amidst great uncertainty and potentially on the edge of instability. Again, I'll reference all the problems. We have the yellow vests, we have migrants, the... not migrants, but the belligerent migrants who keep throwing fireworks in the streets of Paris. You have that, you have a growing geopolitical struggle between them and Britain that for the time being they're kind of losing. Uh, We'll see where they go in the event of France leaving the EU. But there's that. He has, Macron specifically, he has an election where the polls are kind of closed. Uh, The gap has closed, there we go, between him and Marine Le Pen, who has been garnering support for the past couple years now and almost won the first time she went up against him but he beat her but now his victory is going to be uncertain because of all of these problems that have been laid at his feet and that he is currently ignoring in favor of uh i don't know what he's, he's doing everything but solving problems in france he did address uh islam though so i imagine there are going to be sections of the french population who were fed up with the violence caused by the militant Islamists in France who are probably going to give him their vote, but whether or not that'll be enough to compensate for the fury he's garnering by blatantly ignoring all these other problems in France, because um, I, I can guarantee he, he doesn't have the yellow vest vote, I, <laughs> he doesn't have the yellow vest vote. Uh, We might be seeing the final days of of Emmanuel Macron. But, that is that. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Tigray situation and the fate of Syria. Alright, we're back. And now we're going to talk about the situation in Tigray, in Ethiopia. Now, the short story is, uh, the rebellion slash war started in November of last year and is still ongoing, as predicted, given the mountainous country that is Ethiopia. The longer story is, well, it's a little complicated. The people's, the Tigray People's Liberation Front took control of the Tigray region. Uh, They had been the dominant political force there for a while, and they were ousted. They, They, well, they took control of the North, of Ethiopia, the Tigray region itself, Uh, the TPLF, and that's the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, was estimated to have around 250,000 fighters, with about 50,000 of them being military-grade rather than um, low-experience militia. Uh, And with these fighters, the TPLF started seizing control of federal buildings and military bases in Tigray back in November, officially beginning the civil war there. Uh, There was potential for Eritrean intervention, as the Eritrean government was and kind of does remain hostile to the TPLF, but so far, it seems like they won't get involved. Uh... It seems like they seem like they won't be getting involved, and so far the Ethiopian federal government is winning, and the Tigray forces were very quickly forced into retreat and have been put in a situation where they have to fight a guerrilla war now. Uh, Tigray, to the benefit of this rebellion, is a particularly mountainous region of Ethiopia. Uh, a country which is already very mountainous in nature. Now, this means guerrilla warfare is going to be very effective, in especially with that many militants under their control. We're talking 250,000 uh, normies, and 50,000 of which are truly military-grade. That is a significant fighting force, uh... Tucked away into the mountains where you can't really touch them. Uh, and we we know that mountains help with guerrilla warfare because they help Afghan, they help the Taliban a lot. So, and another benefit of being in such a mountainous region of the country to, you know, uh, an excellent place to stage a rebellion uh, is because the mountains will neutralize a fair bit of the advantages that air superiority provides. And while the Ethiopian federal government does have air assets that Tigray simply doesn't, but because the Tigray Rebellion are tucked away into the mountains, it makes airstrikes, you know, less effective than they would be if you were, like, in wide-open desert or on the plains of Europe or in the wide-open ocean. So, the types of maneuvers that an an aerial assault you can use, well, let me rephrase that, the types of aerial assaults and aerial support tactics that you could use in the mountains are going to be different and a lot less numerous than you would if, again, the terrain was wide open. So... This is going to be great for the Rebellion, because they do not have an Air Force. So being able to fight back against a superior military force who does uh, is going to be a massive advantage. I, I can only stress that much. We'll see if they get any outside help. It doesn't look like they will, because they're kind of landlocked between Eritrea, who is hostile to them, And Sudan, who is actually, now that I think about it, Sudan might be their best option for outside help. Because Sudan and Ethiopia are currently in a border conflict right now uh, that is unresolved, that is taking Ethiopia's attention away from Tigray. So we could see uh, underhanded intervention in Ethiopia's civil war using Sudan as the doorway into the region. And we could see them start getting armed with. RPGs. Uh, and they could start shooting down. Any air assets or. Maybe like armored vehicles that the federal government has. And wither away their forces. And they could win. Because. Well that depends on their parameters for victory really. If they're just trying to secede. From Ethiopia. They could win that way, but if they're going to go on the offensive, then Ethiopia would basically have all the advantages that Tigray has right now, because the rest of Ethiopia is mountainous too. So, uh, the person on the offense is always going to be at the disadvantage. Whoever's on the defense will always have the advantage. So, if Tigray just wants independence, this is probably going to be a fight that they can win. But if they want control over Ethiopia in its entirety, I don't think they're going to be able to get that. Unless the government just concedes to them and whatever terms that they may have. But I believe that the TPLF believes that they can win. Because if they didn't believe they could win, well, they'd they'd probably be gearing up for a Hail Mary on the Renaissance Dam. Which is further to the south. Um where Ethiopia meets the southern portions of Sudan, um, and that dam, will something would happen. All right, I've made that clear that that's what I believe will happen if things really start to go south in this war, or just that's a major power play that the Tigray Rebellion could make, sabotaging the dam. However, whatever which way they may choose to do so, I believe that... As this conflict goes on, something's going to happen to that dam, all right? Something's going to happen. It's not going to be pretty. (laughs) Well, it'll be pretty if you're Egypt, you know. Egypt doesn't like that Ethiopia is building a dam, and Sudan is complicit in the construction of the dam because Sudan uh, will get energy from it. Ethiopia is going to sell them energy at low rates, so Sudan is more than happy to let the dam get built. Uh, We may see Sudan's mind change on that if this border conflict uh, escalates But right now it's at a low simmer, so they're still on board with the project But war is war and things get blown up Now Ethiopia's military I should stress does have major advantages and This is why it dominated so quickly early on in the conflict Um, Now fun fact the vast majority of Ethiopia's military equipment comes from Russia, so a prolonged conflict in Ethiopia could mean great things for the Russian economy, as Ethiopia's federal government purchases replacement parts and new equipment from Russia. So, they, they could do that, or maybe they might find a new supplier, but given all of the Russian equipment they have, they seem to be all in on the russian military machine and usage of russian military machinery so probably we could look for that i'm sure russia will enjoy that uh but so far we have oh my notes got messed up here there we go so far we have ninety-six thousand Eritrean refugees that have been caught up in the conflict, uh, which is around uh, of which around twenty thousand have fled the violence, and are kind of still unaccounted for because we don't know where they went. Uh, I imagine they haven't gone to Eritrea again. If they left Eritrea to go to Ethiopia, they may have gone to Sudan. They may have just gone further into Ethiopia. Just away from the Tigray region, we'll start to see, but uh, so far all of this uh, kind of reminds me of America's civil war, especially with how it began, where you had a region that seceded from the federal government, uh, proclaimed its independence, and then started seizing federal property within its jurisdiction, and that's what triggered the conflict. Uh, but of course on America it was of a greater scale because America is a bigger country and there were more people involved in the fighting Um, and the Confederacy didn't get smashed immediately and forced to fight a guerrilla war Um, so there are obvious divergences between the American Civil War and the Tigray Rebellion but the way it started just really gave me uh, just really made me think of the way the American Civil War started. So, I imagine it'll have a roughly different conclusion, given the different nature of the fighting. I mean, um, America is kind of... America's battlefields were kind of, like, wide open, with the exception of the fighting in the Appalachians. Other than that, the fighting in the West, the fighting in the East, that was flat land. So, the nature of the fighting was going to be different, even if they had modern weaponry. uh, Especially given Ethiopia is a very, very mountainous country. But, that's Ethiopia. We'll see how things play out there. And now, we're going to talk about the fate of Syria. Now, the ministers from Russia, Turkey, and Iran... Have recently met in Sochi now uh, this Sochi is a city in Russia Uh, to those who remember it was the city where the Olympics took place I believe it was the 2008 Olympics Uh, and then right after that Russia walked into Georgia but that was Sochi was where the Olympics were and these three countries and their ministers who are representing them have continued the work of resolving the Syrian civil war. This this conference seeks to build a new constitution for Syria and to restore Syrian sovereignty. That's what I was able to gather from their stated goals and what they were talking about. But while nothing really concrete happened in the meeting itself... um. Uh, the meeting, and all prior to it, are important, I believe, because they underline a phenomenon that I've been observing in my short tenure in the field of geopolitics, and that is this phenomenon of regional disputes and regional crises being increasingly handled and nowadays more and more resolved by regional powers so let me put let me say that again regional disputes and regional crises are increasingly being handled and resolved by regional powers this new or rather old paradigm is something we haven't really seen since the end of world war ii and because after World War II, it was superpowers that dictated the flow of global geopolitics, Russia and America. But now it seems that we're heading towards a newer version of the era that preceded the post-World War II era. And that is a multipolar world of imperial competition and the era, well, a world of multipolar competition usually between empires the era of the rise and fall of empires an era which is really just historic norm when you think about it because um, when you read history books you don't hear about peace love and co- cooperation you hear about the rise and fall of empires in different regions of the world and the impact that they had on the world around them although that impact was usually smaller than because the reach of these empires were smaller. Um, but we learned about the rise and fall of empires. You had Egypt, you had Babylon, you had Sumer, you had the Ottomans, you had China and all its dynasties, you had certain kingdoms in India who got close but could never really conquer all of India, you had the Mongols, you had the Central Asian hordes uh, like um Tamerlane and Scythia, uh, Tamiris of Scythia, all these empires, the, the British, the French, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Russian, and that's kind of been the way history moved. You even had empires in the New World, the Aztecs and the Incans so when you compare that to what we have seen since the end of world war ii um really it's just we've just seen the collapse of the soviets into uh multiple successor states of which russia being the preeminent one and that's kind of been it for the past couple decades we haven't seen other countries really really like collapse i mean you could make the case for venezuela but they're still a country they're just in a really bad spot (laughs) i'll put it that way but yeah we have again we haven't really seen what people who have come before us would have seen that is wars of imperial expansion and then Well, the weight of empire tearing them down from the inside, and then they fall apart. And then new countries and new empires arise from the ashes of the old empire. Then they expand, and they fight one another. Maybe some outside force that comes from the steppes of Asia rolls them over (laughs) with a bunch of horses, and then they disappear, uh, and new empires form in the wake of that. We haven't really seen that ourselves. Um, so again, it's an old way of doing things, but we're seeing it start to come back. And I've kind of underlined this a couple times before in the podcast, namely when talking about, say, Turkey, Russia, or China, and even to a limited extent, France, uh, who still maintains a sphere of influence in Africa, um... And we talk, I've talked about extensively the conflict in Libya and the many competing interests there. But how I ultimately believe the Ottomans, oh, oh I'm sorry, how I believe Turkey <laughs> is going to win out there. But we're kind of seeing a return to that, especially as America is very, very content to not be there to stop countries from fighting each other. Who would otherwise be at each other's throats. We're seeing it with China and India. In well. All of Asia. Minus Russia of course. And India kind of boxed in. They can't get to Central Asia. But Central Asia is a battleground. Between Russia and China. For influence. Um, you have the Cold War. Again between China and India. And it's developing as we speak. We're seeing competition between china and certain european countries over africa and influence in africa and i believe that will eventually in time bring them to some sort of indirect conflict africa is a really big place but i imagine china's sphere of influence will probably come clashing against france's sphere of influence or maybe even turkey's sphere of influence in africa And you'll see indirect conflicts, maybe exploitations of civil wars. The great game, but instead of Russia and Britain, it'll be maybe China and France. Maybe it'll be France and Turkey. Maybe it'll be uh, Turkey and Ethiopia. Uh, If Ethiopia can get its Tigray rebellion uh, and really, really put it down. A whole bunch of things that we're starting to see now that are more reminiscent of of the eras of the past Uh, and while it may technically be the old way of doing things it is still new to us uh, here today in the modern world which makes it truly interesting a truly interesting thing to watch Uh, of course it's more interesting from the safety of a secure nation um, I'd imagine if you're living in the conflict zone or the frontier between empires I would imagine it's not nearly as fun But hey, I don't have to worry about that. So it's fun for me but I'll, I'll digress lots of um, Lots of interesting things and we'll get into our closing statements in just a bit All right, we're back We're seeing lots of things from the old world start to creep back into the modern world. Things that many of us kind of took for granted as, oh, it's in the past, it'll never happen again. Um, We're different now. That was a different time. And we're kind of starting to see that really the era that we have been living in is the aberration what we have been living in is the abnormal, not what people lived in for thousands of years, um, right up until the Second World War. I mean, when you think about, um, World War One, it was a clash between, em- a literal clash between empires, all the participants were empires, um, uh, it wasn't necessarily over spheres of influence, but World War II was. It was the Nazi Empire, or the attempted empire, and their Germany's conclusion that if they w- wanted to expand, they couldn't go into Africa. They would be starved by the British. So their best hope would be a land empire, and they came into conflict with the other land, co- the la- other land powers of Europe. And you saw this, you saw them come immediately into contact with the British sphere of influence because they were guaranteeing the independence of Poland. And then the Germans invaded Poland and that triggered the war. And in the aftermath of the war, you had new players. Well, Russia's not new, but you had America getting involved uh, when usually it wouldn't, but it was... A major, major—not even a major power. It was a superpower. And what could you really say? It's not the Germans didn't have a say. They got obliterated. The French didn't have a say. They were occupied for most of the war. Uh, the British were outgunned, outmanned, and <laughs> they were outgunned and outnumbered, both in Europe and on the is- the British Isles themselves. Uh, interesting thing that I learned about. There were more American personnel on the British Isles than there were British military. So think about that. So you had two superpowers that effectively froze geopolitics in place um, wherever their attention was not. Uh, so you had Germany frozen into two opposing sides. You had Korea being frozen into two separate sides, even though there was fighting. They, you had Vietnam. Almost, also, they almost fell to the same uh, split, north-south split that you had in Korea. But um, that didn't happen. America pulled out at the last second. And other than that, the geopolitical map has been frozen. Countries, oh, You've only seen countries like in, say, Africa or Central Asia get away with like invading one another or the middle east getting away with invading one another and even then we haven't really seen the borders change or the administrative zones uh, of authority change and it's really just this aberration that i think many of us have taken for granted as normal because for us it is but it, it appears that we're heading towards something more like the historic normal than what we have gotten used to and I imagine for a great number of people it's going to be very unfun very not fun and for some it'll be the best of times I, I imagine that'll be the empires that are rising and not falling but nevertheless that is all I have for you today I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And the world is changing. It's getting old. But for us, it's new. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Hopefully. (laughs) So, that being said, I have been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, until we meet again next Monday... Cerebus.